Sports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, a look at the rookies in the Cup Series and the difference between production and results, the important things we learned from Vegas and what they may tell us going forward, and the bizarre thing to think about this weekend in Fontana. But first, as always, this is episode 50 of Positive Regression. This is the Gober Sosavi edition. And if you are like me, you are asking, who is Gober Sosavi? David, take it from here. Before there was a Chase Elliott, before there was a Bill Elliott, <laughs> yep. Gober Sosavi was the pride of Dawsonville. Georgia. He was a regular fixture in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when Daytona Speed Weeks was contested on the beach, the old beach course. They held a wide number of races during those iterations of Speed Weeks, and Sosabee won in some form or fashion each year between 49 and 51 while driving his Cherokee Garage number 50 car in the NASCAR Strictly Stock Series, which was the precursor to the Cup Series, he won two poles, driving his famed number 50, and won two races, both on dirt at Hayloft Speedway in Augusta, Georgia, and Central City Speedway in Macon, Georgia, though he was driving the number 51 at the time. He earned 17 top five finishes in 71 career starts. 44 of those, Alan, took place on the dirt. He ranks 25th all-time in laps led in NASCAR Cup Series dirt races. I think when we get to episode 91, we'll discuss the outright leader in that category, the great Tim Flock, and focus in on his dirt driving skill. But Gober Sosabi, fun name, fun specialty behind the wheel, sort of a regional cult hero in the formative days of NASCAR. Yeah, good stuff. Worth uh, worth a Google search on your part to all the listeners out there. You'll learn a lot and see a lot of cool pictures. But yeah, born, raised, buried in uh, Dawsonville, Georgia. Has a street named after him in that small city. And if you do a little research, you'll see, according to his son, he has the fastest lap ever recorded on the Daytona Beach course. So I learned a lot, David, about Gover Sosabi for episode 50 of Positive Regression. Let's get it started from a, uh, let's see, Gober, you know, was a, was a veteran in this sport. I'm trying to transition into the, the rookie crop that we have in 2020 in the Cup Series because uh, a lot of names, David, a lot of talent, and a lot to talk about when, when looking at it. Um, for, first thing to think of when we're discussing the rookies is what, what should we really expect? Because I think, Sometimes, you know, you thrust expectations upon rookies and like, oh, you know, people predict, oh, the playoffs or a win or what have you. I, I myself think, you know, a rookie season should be hard. I think the Cup Series should be hard. I think rookies should struggle. From my perspective, when I think what, what should we expect or look for from rookies, I just want to see improvement. It's one of the reasons I like the Truck Series. I talked a lot about Tyler Ankrum last year. Uh, you could see the improvement from race to race, you know, from the beginning of the season Toward the playoffs, you saw him making moves that he wouldn't do anymore, you know, that he would have done in the beginning of the season. You, you see them becoming better drivers. That's what I expect out of rookies. How do you look? Uh, what do you, what should we look for when we look at rookies, David? Well, you made a good point that the Cup Series is hard. And for the most part, rookies do find it hard and often struggle. So the one thing that I tend to look for is the one thing they can do well, one statistical category for which a driver can claim. 
Take last year's rookie class, for example. Daniel Hemrick was a fine driver at the Xfinity Series level who did not do one thing particularly well at the cup level. It seems harsh after just one year to cut him loose, but given he was already 28 years old, I think Richard Childress Racing was justified in their decision to replace him with Tyler Reddick. There was another key rookie in this class, Ryan Priest, and while he also struggled similar to Hemrick, there was a bright spot, some attractiveness in his passing numbers, and that might be enough, Alan. That might be enough for a foundation. So with that, let's let's think about what he has. Let's let's build this team. Ryan Priest is now paired with crew chief Trent Owens, himself a good pit strategist. So right off the bat, I feel good about their number 37 car keeping track position in their usual running whereabouts. Because Priest has demonstrated some ability to pass efficiently and play defense in traffic in dirty air, uh, this, if Trent Owens is inclined, becomes the safety net if Owens takes some big swings in an effort to put Priest in clean air just to see if he can take advantage of the faster lap times offered by clean air. And that's that's something we're going to talk about later in this episode. And with Priest's strength, you now have an understanding of his potential floor and you're free to go search for the height of his ceiling and the team's ceiling. That particular team, JTG, doesn't have race-winning speed, but they have enough things between the driver and the crew chief that they do well to make them interesting. And we can see how a team built around Ryan Priest's one quantifiable strength would work and to me, that's what you're looking for from a first-year driver. We just want to know how this will all work, how this could possibly succeed. Uh, so with this year's rookie crop, it, it is wildly talented. Really, though, we're just setting the bar low. We're really looking for one thing that they each can do well. All right. Now that we've set that, we're going to go through. We'll, we'll go through each rookie in this year's rookie class. And we're going to start with John Hunter Nemechek. And David, we're starting with him because this this whole topic for us came up. We, we were texting. I texted you during the Las Vegas race. And I said, you know, would it surprise you if John Hunter Nemechek was the best rookie in terms of production? And again, production is different from results. Production is what you contribute as a driver. And I, I asked you flat out, would it surprise you at all if John Hunter Nemechek in terms of production was the best rookie of them all? So is he as good or could be better than the big three who we're going to talk about in a second? I believe so. Um, and, and I'll, I'll separate the, the, the answer into two parts. Uh, firstly, the big three is a construct. It is an idea that the best drivers last year in the Xfinity series were also the drivers with the most wins. And those two notions do not coalesce. Wins are a measure of team performance, not a sound method for evaluating individuals. One thing that does matter in the evaluation of young drivers is adaptability. If we can recall Cole Custer's first Xfinity Series season, he was 19 years old and scored a peer below 1.0, which is the series average. 
Tyler Reddick's first Xfinity Series season was 21 years old. He uh, he did win a race in a very fast Chip Ganassi racing car. But his other efforts that year were so bad that it affected his production rating. Uh, he wrapped the season with a 0.028 that ranked him 45th out of 60 drivers. And he was the series champion the next season, but ranked 20th in peer. But John Hunter Nemechek was different. As it was pointed out to me by his father, Joe, uh, <laughs> last year in Charlotte when I, when I interviewed him for an article on The Athletic, John Hunter was top of the board in his first ever Xfinity Series practice session. It came at Atlanta, a quote-unquote driver's track, and in John Hunter's first year, he ranked 14th in peer with a 1.944 rating ahead of Tyler Reddick, who won the championship that season. Adaptability is an ability. And I realize that sounds like something, you know, uh, a motivational speaker <laughs> at like the Hotel Marriott would tell you, but it's true. And this is something that was caught in my preseason regression analysis uh, in an attempt to forecast the season. Nemechek has the 19th best peer projection out of 39 drivers, and he ranks as the second best rookie in part because the regression analysis takes into account his development history. And we're seeing that already. I made him one of my breakout picks for 2020 on The Athletic, primarily because he put the other front row motorsports drivers to shame last year. His average finish in his three starts uh, at the end of the year was 23.7, and that was a three-race stretch that included two crashes. That average finish was better than all three of Michael McDowell, Matt Tift, and David Reagan. This year, he might not have the weekly horsepower of Bell, Reddick, and Custer. You cannot expect him to outrace those three guys given where Front Row Motorsports currently is as an organization, but it stands to reason he could stand out this year for Front Row and rank a little higher in peer than some of those guys, if not all of them. Interesting. So yeah, again, just uh, listeners out there, you know, we're focused on what the driver brings to the table. Obviously not, not the, the stat line at the end of the year in terms of whatever top tens or what have you. I mean, that, that's how we're evaluating the drivers here and that's a good way to do it. So John Hunter Nemechek, potential spoiler, if you believe in the big three, but let's go to the biggest po possibly of the big three, Christopher Bell, uh, his projection and realistic expectation. What, First of all, let me ask you, David, how much should we factor his equipment into expectations in terms of is that a fifth JGR car or if he's going to have all this speed, are the expectations higher for him? How do we factor that in? That's a great question because we don't we don't know. We've heard, but we don't know. But Bell actually ranked 12th in peer projection ahead of drivers like Matt Benedetto, William Byron, Eric Almarola, and Kurt Busch in part because he had little trouble adapting. He was more like John Hunter uh, than he was Cole Custer and Tyler Reddick. He was a good Xfinity Series producer pretty much immediately. He's also 25 years old. He has a fully functional frontal cortex in that <laughs> noggin of his. And Alan, I'm serious. That's a key development point for peak levels of peripheral vision, depth perception, and processing thought at high speed all of those feel very important to driving race cars. So he is set up on paper for a great rookie season. And of course, you're right. The the question here, what will be remembered is his superficial stat line of wins, top fives, 
whether he makes the playoffs. And that is largely dependent on team strength. To this point, Levine Family Racing is still, to me, an unknown. We saw them improve at the end of the last year. We've uh, we've heard that they have additional Toyota support this year, Joe Gibbs Racing support, but we don't know the extent. We haven't seen it fleshed out on the racetrack. Uh, we didn't get to see it last weekend. There, there was no qualifying session. I would have liked to have seen what Bell could have done had he had some initial track position or clean air, um, but we, we didn't get that. It felt at, at times last weekend like the 37th race of 2019 as opposed to the second race of 2020. Um, so we're still kind of waiting, but the numbers are particularly bullish on Christopher Bell. All right. Next up, Tyler Reddick. Uh, certainly, you know, from just a fan perspective, if you will, he certainly has those intangibles, right, of closing out races, being aggressive, getting wins, going to the high line, uh, putting on exciting, exciting moves and stuff. But what, what are the numbers, the analytics, the, the expectations? What do they all tell us? Tyler Reddick ranked 22nd in the peer projection, probably a little lower than most subjective estimations, but still higher than drivers like Chris Busher, Ricky Stenhouse, Austin Dillon, his stablemate at Richard Childress Racing, uh, and for what it's worth, Jimmy Johnson. Make of that what you will. I really liked the speed of RCR's cars individually at Daytona. And at Las Vegas, uh, I have heard from good sources that those cars tend to test well in the wind tunnel. It's a different story come when it hits the racetrack. But in Las Vegas, smart pit decisions were made to put Tyler Reddick in fifth place on old tires for that final restart. And this may have been Reddick's welcome to the cup series moment because he pretty much got abused on that restart, ironically, by Jimmy Johnson, among (laughs) others. In in, in two laps, Reddick fell from fifth to 18th. It helped. He was a part of that crash among the the middle cluster. Um, I would like to point out that Austin Dillon, also on old tires and a similar pit strategy, restarted from sixth and finished fourth. And not totally because of being in Joey Logano's line, but dare I say, experience. Austin Dillon's seen these restarts before. He understands the basic dynamics and avoided the middle lanes where the majority of the chaos ensued. Reddick doesn't yet have this knowledge. Johnson uh, kind of took advantage, just kicking him to the middle, and and that was that was no man's land. It might not take that long for Tyler Reddick to get the gist of all of this, everything that the Cup Series uh, forces upon rookies. But there is a learning curve, and his past development history suggests he goes through ups and downs when learning. Next up, Cole Custer, the youngest of the group that we're talking about, just 22 years old, David. Uh, we're at the big leagues now. I don't know if you get the benefit of the doubt or the benefit of saying, oh, he's younger. Maybe he shouldn't be as good as Christopher Bell. But is that a positive, a negative attribute that he is so good at, at age 22? Uh, well, I think you're hitting it on the head. I think the the age is working against him this year. Uh, he ranks 21st in his peer projection with a 0.971 rating. That is just under the series average. The normal 22-year-old cup driver, 
scores a peer below 0.800. So Custer projects above average for his age, which is good, and that is good for his future. Being at the series average suggests both highs and lows, and at times those lows are going to appear really bad. That's kind of the nature of how things go for drivers this young. He's in a Stuart Haas car that, in theory, should compete for a playoff spot. However, that will not be easy to accomplish given his youth, given his relative inexperience. It is a lot for a good team to overcome. If this particular team makes the playoffs, it's quite a success, more so than what may be popularly perceived because it's a Stuart Haas card. It's probably the best situation for any rookie this year. And look, those cars are fast. They should be in the playoffs. But in his scenario, it's not exactly that straightforward. This will be a challenging year for Custer. And again, look for that one thing. If it was uh, one of his sticking points in the Xfinity series is before he was winning races, he was winning polls. Maybe that's it. Maybe he's ripping off good lap times. Maybe he's putting himself in a position where he has early track position. And that's just where it all begins. That's that's just the tip of the iceberg for what we see with Custer. But for a first year, that might also be all you can expect. And some previews or analysis would end there of the rookie crop. But positive regression does not, David. Because we still have Quinn Hauf and Brennan Poole to discuss. Um, obviously, kind of smaller teams. Um, expectations you wouldn't believe as high. But what constitutes a good season for Quinn Hauf and, and Brennan Poole and teams like that? I would say exceeding their lot within the sport. Uh, Alan, what is often unsaid uh, about these rides that, that drivers tend to settle for in the back of the pack is that there is the potential to use these as stepping stones for something better, assuming everything goes according to plan. But they have to perform better than the expectation of the car. I interviewed Brennan Poole back in December when this deal was announced. And folks, he's not an idiot. He understands the challenges that come with uh, driving a car like this for premium motorsports, an underfunded team. But his outlook was logical. And he uh, he hit me with a really good quote. He said, if I have a race where I get everything I'm able to get out of the race car and I do all the little things right and don't make any mistakes, I do well on restarts, I do well on pit road, and I finish the highest I'm capable of finishing, then that's a win for me and a win for this team. And it's going to have to take just kind of a, to use a, a Corey LaJoy phrase, a stacking pennies philosophy um, of, of finishes just to have just one data point after the other uh, for both Quinn Hauf and Brennan Poole in order to maybe make a case for a future employer down the road. That's what they have to do. And they took these rides because it's the cup series. And if they can prove their worth here in the back of the pack, then maybe something in the middle of the pack opens up and they're considered. Uh, so it's it, it literally is finishing far better than the expectation of the car and doing it on a consistent basis. 
All right. Well, heck of a rookie crop. And again, a lot to look at, even if you are looking at Brennan Poole and what he's doing week to week and Quinn Hoff. Um, you know, there, there are things to pay attention to, even if they is, is not a surprise rookie in the top five. That's what I hope everyone is just firmly grasping here because, uh, progress and going beyond your expectations is, is something big, especially for a rookie. Moving on. Last week, we, uh, when we were previewing Las Vegas, we, uh, gave you what we hope to learn. So now we're going to tell you what we did learn in Las Vegas, or hopefully what we learned. Uh, David, something I wanted to learn, I wanted to know going into Vegas was the strength of Hendrick Motorsports. And what did we learn from Las Vegas? Well, they looked pretty damn strong. I mean, just on the face of it, Chase Elliott certainly had a winning capable car. So did Alex Bowman. Uh, Byron was far from, uh, you know, he was top five, top seven all day. And David, it wasn't that type of, you know, surprise top five or like, Oh, look at William Byron. It was like, it, you know, it, it, it's time for him to be there. Top five, top seven speed. Like he was showing he was one of the stronger cars throughout the day. And then at the end of the race, who of all gets the best finish of them all? Jimmy Johnson. So, uh, not only that, David, when I looked at the central speed rankings that you do for motorsports analytics, the fastest cars in the series, four out of the top five, are Hendrick Motorsports cars. So I would say we learned a lot, at least for the first two races, and a lot in Las Vegas about Hendrick Motorsports. What say you? Yeah, this is one very significant data point, and I'd like to see if this can continue, but here's the rundown. The fastest car per central speed at Las Vegas belonged to Chase Elliott. The fastest car in the fourth quarter of the race belonged to William Byron, which means the late restart by Joey Logano. He was lined up side-by-side against Byron. Uh, Yeah, a little more difficult a feat than some folks may have realized, contrary to the comment section in one of my articles for The Athletic this week. (laughs) Uh, Byron's car was also the third fastest in the entire race. And you mentioned Alex Bowman, sixth fastest car in the race, third fastest in the fourth quarter, it was like he was shot out of a cannon uh, on that that final long green flag run. And I think you were you, you were tweeting about him uh, at that point. Um, but boy, they they looked very strong as a team. And I know uh, some of the narrative that I caught was, well, Chevrolet is back, but really that means Hendrick Motorsports, right? Because that's that's who came to the surface this past weekend and this coming weekend on a two-mile track at Auto Club Speedway is another test of uh, car, of horsepower, and it's just going to be one more data point. And if it goes in Hendrick's favor, then I think we can begin conversations as to whether this is legitimate or not. Yeah, things moving in the right direction, especially early in the season. We look back to one year ago. They didn't seem anywhere near as good this early, so that's a positive if you are a fan of HMS. Uh, also in Vegas, Matty D, Matt DiBenedetto, best ride of his career, probably the one of the best cars or fastest cars he's ever had uh, on a mile and a half track. David, he ends up second. What does that tell you about Matt DiBenedetto? Yeah, his his per quarter speed rankings from first quarter to fourth quarter, uh, get this, were 15th, 15th, 10th, and 6th. Hmm. He got faster as the race progressed and with knowledge of what he told me last week for an article, he didn't want to do anything crazy with this newfound speed of his. And he 
revealed to me that he is attempting to model himself after Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex on the racetrack because he views them as smart, disciplined, and in it to win it at the end of every race, seemingly. And, and those are, those are two good drivers to, to model himself after. What happened in, in Las Vegas could serve that narrative, but I don't believe that to be totally true. We did not see him or anyone qualify. The field lined up by points from 2019. So De Benedetto had Paul Menard to thank for his starting position. Uh, the clean air, dirty air difference was huge in this race. And I think his lap times early were due to the fact that he just didn't have clean air at his disposal. And I'm curious to see what he's capable of given a good starting position. Penske drivers tend to thrive on clean air. Their cars sure seem optimized for it. And this is a de facto Penske car. And I actually think we're just scratching the surface here with De Benedetto because this could have been a more upfront, obvious performance instead of the shock second place win as it's being hailed. And it was a deserving second place finish, but we, I think we actually could have seen a little bit more from Matt De Benedetto. Good stuff. And one of the drivers who had clean air and was leading this race and nearly looked like he potentially going to win, Ryan Blaney, uh, they made a decision. Todd Gordon made a decision to pit and give up the clean air on that final caution and at least gave up the lead. You know, who knows if it cost him the win or not. But uh, sort of a bummer if you're a Ryan Blaney fan, certainly, when you finish outside, I think finished outside the top 10 after uh, having a car that was six laps away from winning the race and, and really earning it. Remember, he went up and passed his teammate, Joey Logano. He was running away. There was maybe a threat from Alex Bowman, but he was six laps away, David, and they decided to come down pit road. What did that teach you? What does that tell you? Oh, yeah. This, this was, this was pretty brutal to watch, right? Like we, we've discussed on past episodes, Blaney's chief weakness over the last few years was long run passing. And I've heard from folks within the industry that there was a concern about his inability to close the deal. And I'm using quotation marks. For what it's worth, I don't agree with that. Uh, closing the deal is an effect, not a cause. And if you want to look at the particulars, he ranked seventh last year in fourth quarter speed, ninth in overall central speed. So he did get faster as the race progressed. He had a track position problem last year, not a going fast problem. And that's not something that's entirely on him. But Allen, nevertheless, last Sunday, he made that statement pass for the lead. Mm -hmm. And it appeared for a while that he clinched himself the win. That would have addressed both of those narratives. And then the pit stop when the caution came out and I saw him pull in. My heart just sank for him. Uh, of course, we we have the advantage of hindsight, but there'd be only two laps to go uh, on the restart. Ryan Blaney is a top five restarter in the series. If you're crew chief Todd Gordon, the situation stinks uh, to give up that, that green flag advantage, but you're armed for the restart. Blaney is that good of a restarter, and that notion coupled with uh, the clean air advantage that we talked about should have negated the advantage of fresh tires, which amounted to anywhere from three-tenths of a second to a half a second per lap 
that's a fair amount, but certainly something from which Blaney could have conceivably driven away. That was an avoidable loss. There's no guarantee he would have gotten the win, but you really like that situation for Blaney. And I suspect that that's one that will keep Todd Gordon awake at night. I feel like there has to be enough data points at this point that clean air has to win out, right? Or at least on a two-lap shootout because, again, I'm just thinking, I don't know if there's metrics or numbers to to back this up, but in two laps, I mean, look what happened to Logano. You really only had to make it one lap, right? I mean, if you make it the one lap and then there's the chaos of a potential wreck or everybody's spreading out behind you and not really getting the attack that they want on that first driver. It seems like the, the the probabilities, the risk is all in your favor if you're on that front row. Uh, so that I, I agree with you in terms of anybody that pulled in the pit. It was just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. It's only two laps, and it really only turned into one lap. Yeah, and and not not a track where tires came into play that much. Like if you want to see a tire wear track, tune in this weekend to to the Fontana race because that's going to be a different story. But here, I mean, you someone with fresh tires, even if they were one row behind, probably would have needed Blaney to absolutely blow the restart, spin the tires, something. And I'm I'm sorry, he's not he's a good restarter. He's not that guy. So you you would be asking a lot from a driver who doesn't typically do that. I just it's it's one of those things, you know, Chris Gabehart said it after Phoenix last year, you the 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 champions want the ball, right? Well, give Ryan Blaney an opportunity to lose the race. Don't just seed the lead spot and then have to chase it back down. Um I I just that that did kind of bug me. I just felt like an opportunity just gone. Yep. And one more thing I want to bring up from Las Vegas, David, is just stage points because Jimmy Johnson uh, I think has 15 through two races. And one year ago, he had two stage points through two races. Oh. So uh good finishes and getting those stage points, which can prove invaluable if you don't have that win. Uh, that, again, that's light years ahead than where he was last year in terms of, of getting yeah. those stage points, especially early in the season. So yeah, the- and he was he was uh fast in final practice, right? Like that, it had he had a little bit better of a starting position uh at the first stage that could have been even more it could have been it could have bordered on a stage win we don't know let's hope for sunny weather out in california yeah. because they are headed to fontana and that means we get to preview the race and this week's race preview is sponsored by monkeyknifefight.com if you are listening to positive regression there's a good chance you are interested in playing daily fantasy sports and if that's the case, monkeyknifefight.com is the daily fantasy site for you. It's the fastest growing daily fantasy site, and for good reason. Unlike other sites, you're playing against the house. That's right, no sharks, no confusing interface, no need to learn coding in order to have a chance at winning. All you need is knowledge. And I know if you're listening to positive regression, you guys are smart. So some and some of us, some of you even emailed us last week to tell us that you won money thanks in part to listening to this podcast. So congratulations. Now this weekend specifically, there are games for basketball, hockey, and NASCAR. And monkeyknifefight.com is doing something really cool for listeners of positive regression. If you sign up for a new account using the promo code POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D, you'll receive a 100% match bonus up to $50. Just use promo code POSREGPOD at monkeyknifefight.com. State and age restrictions apply. See site for, for full terms and restrictions. 
David heading to Fontana, a track that comes with a great reputation of speed, of tire wear, of just being damn old, and producing really, really fun restarts. And restarts are something that have been a bit bizarre when we look at your data. What, what should we be looking at this weekend in terms of restarts? Last year, the inside groove prevailed as the best groove for the front row, but it was the outside groove overall that flowed better, uh, a difference of about 15 percentage points for retention. Uh, and, and what I mean when I say flowed better, the thing I think I like most about Fontana restarts are that a bad restart near the front of the field doesn't have to affect the entire line. Uh, so the initial start of the race last year, Austin Dillon started on the pole, uh, started from the outside groove. Directly two spots behind him was Denny Hamlin, who, um, after crossing the start finish line, uh, worked a lane higher. And Hamlin went from sixth to first within the two laps following that start, primarily because there was ample room to run his own desired line, and it didn't depend on the launch of others, namely Dylan and Kevin Harvick started second on the inside, lost five spots. So an all-around bad start for the front row allowed the sixth-place guy to not only find an alternative route to the front, but take the lead. And I like uh, that on restarts here that creativity is not stifled. And it may take some creativity to do well on restarts this weekend. All right. And this, we mentioned it before, tire wear. Tire wear is what everybody loves. They loved it in Las Vegas, uh, all three races, but they especially love it here in uh, Fontana because it's like sandpaper that just rubs off brand new tires. You would see teams pitting after just a few laps. I think teams have uh, 12 sets of tires this weekend. I heard Greg Irwin crew chief on a Sirius XM this week. And he said, if we had 15, 16, we'd use them all too. How do you uh, factor in the impact of tire wear or what, what that can do to a race and potential performance? Yeah. At minimum, we'll see lap times fall by one and a half seconds on worn tires and it could approach two seconds. It could approach two and a half seconds. So be on the lookout for that. Be on the lookout for tire failures, especially the left rear tire. Teams will certainly trim the car out as much as possible as to travel on that left rear, bordering on abuse. <laughs> that That is a potential trouble spot. And we know that going in. There is already some concern about that. Uh, tire wear will flip the pit strategy we saw last week. Uh, this weekend should be a battle to short the pit cycle. So uh, pitting early to get on fresh tires first and jump positions in the running order while taking advantage of those extra fast lap times. When we hear of gains during pit cycles, this is probably how it's going to go down in Fontana. So what, uh, like a strategy we saw uh, a long pit from, uh, your guy, Brian Patty, Brian Patty bomb. Um, yeah, this, that, that particular strategy, the going long in that case here, you're really risking just falling behind. You're, you're, you're essentially just betting on a caution flag. Whereas he could do a little bit of both. He could hedge, uh, at a track with minimal tire wear like Las Vegas, 
where he wouldn't have fallen behind while trying to get that caution flag this coming weekend. That kind of tactic is a significantly bigger risk. All right. And for the last two weeks, we have picked contrarian contenders. And David, I got to give you credit, man. Week one, Daytona 500, you picked Ryan Newman. We all know, uh, obviously, Ryan Newman doing very well after that crash. But we know what he was doing before that and damn near won the Daytona 500. And last week, you picked Matt DiBenedetto as your contrarian contender pick. And he damn near won the race. At least he finished second. Uh, we talked about him earlier. But so, David, uh, I'm going to let you keep going, man. For this week in Fontana, your contrarian contender pick. Who are you going with? I think I'm going to pick a driver we've already talked about. Uh, Tyler Reddick is my pick. I think it's mostly out of intrigue. RCR had the ninth and 16th fastest cars in last year's race at Fontana. And for a frame of reference for the season, they were um, just, just barely in the top 20 and just outside the top 20. So that's a significant improvement. In the spring race at Michigan, Daniel Hemrick in the number eight car ranked 13th in speed, uh, which is that Michigan being a similar track to Fontana. And if you'd like to connect other two-mile tracks like Pocono uh, for RCR and Indianapolis, if you recall Bubba Wallace's third-place finish, the two-mile track type is where RCR-aligned cars tend to do very well. If we can qualify Reddick as a far more viable driver than Daniel Hemrick, then he should be able to spin a decent finish out of this kind of speed. I think for sure RCR has speed at its disposal. Now it's just a matter of do they have the driving talent to take advantage of this? And I'm a little bullish on Reddick for this weekend. This track sort of fits his driving profile. This, this could be one of the, you know, a, a sneaky top 10 finish and maybe a little bit something more if everything breaks the right way. Uh, I also had picked Tyler Reddick, actually uh, two of the rookies, but Tyler Reddick was on my list. Uh, not as in-depth of an answer as yours, David, but that's why we have it here. But, uh, but I, I agree in terms of, uh, the, the, his, his ability and the kind of track where if you need to find an option, right, where, where this track offers options, it offers different lanes, it, it offers a driver the potential to move up, move down, to find clean air and find something that works. And, you know, we love seeing Tyler Reddick up on the high line and it's something he, he's done in the Xfinity series. So I think this is the kind of track that could lend to him getting a potential good finish. Uh, same thing with Cole Custer. David, last year in this race in the Xfinity series, Cole Custer won the race and remember who he beat. He whooped the field that included Kyle Busch by a large distance. Go back and watch. It was a large margin of victory. I even went and asked my coworker at Fox, Adam Alexander, what happened in that race? I mean, did Kyle, you know, have to go to the back with 10 laps to go or something? Like why was Cole Custer so far out front? They just had a great car and Cole Custer had a great run. And again, I feel this is the type of track that could lend itself to maybe someone with a little less experience. Obviously we talked about how hard it is at the cup level, but this track offers options. And if Cole Custer can find an option that works for him, I think that could be good. And this 41 car, the team anyway, had some good finishes last year on some two-mile tracks like Michigan. Uh, I think they had two great finishes in Michigan with Daniel Suarez. They had a decent finish in Fontana. So potential speed is there. Options are there for a rookie. I think a rookie like Cole Custer, and as you mentioned, Tyler Reddick, could potentially be contrarian contenders. 
Yeah, and I like Custer's crew chief, Mike Shiplett, coming up with him. Uh, so the crew chief that devised that race-winning setup is along for the ride here. It's not going to be an identical setup. It's two totally different cars with uh, different engine packages, but at least they know the feel of, of what it takes to succeed at this track, and they're going to be going to the racetrack this weekend shooting for a feel. Um, that's probably a pretty good start. And finally, what do we want to learn this weekend in Fontana? David, you go ahead. Well, huh. For, you know, for as much as we think of Fontana as this track with just cars spread out everywhere on the wide surface, the, the hectic restarts, the perceived parody, each of the last four races saw a car lead over half of the laps. Last year, Kyle Busch won this race after leading 67% of it. Hmm. Busch won five races last year. This was by far his most dominant win. My theory is that because two-mile tracks have such a small presence on the current Cup Series schedule and no representation in the playoffs, most teams won't go the extra mile to ensure this as a strength. So when we see teams dominate, they're typically just the best teams overall. You know, Kyle Busch ended up winning the championship. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? I'd like to learn whether this continues to hold true. It strikes me if, like how RCR approaches these races, these tracks could serve as a specialty, then right now it's low-hanging fruit you know, for the time being, compete for uh, compete hard for a win in a playoff spot on a track type for which teams do prepare, but not at the expense of focus from tracks that might decide the championship. So I'm looking at those middle middle of the pack teams, the Roush Fenways, the JTGs. This seems ripe for the picking, and I want to learn if any teams have actually figured that out. All right. I'm about to get ultra specific on you, David, because, uh, Denny Hamlin, who we've had on the podcast, a noted positive regression listener. I want to know if he has improved his passing on two mile tracks. I looked up the data last of left for last year in 2019 and not that he had any really weaknesses at all, but if there is one, one area of small weakness in 2019 by track type, these two mile type tracks, is where he had his worst passing numbers, his worst surplus value. And given what we said, talked with him about and what he said here before, he is a student of the game. He does a lot of research. It wouldn't surprise me if he knew that his worst passing performances were on two-mile type tracks. Uh, is that something he wants to focus on? You mentioned you know, this track type is not in the playoffs. It's not represented anywhere, you know, in actually chasing down a championship. He's already in the playoff. But... If he wants to be perfect, if he wants to be as well-rounded as possible, David, I want to see if he improves his two-mile type track passing numbers. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it just it kind of boils down to how much importance is placed on this track type. And for the front runners, I think we can call Denny Hamlin that. He's already in the playoffs. But for the front runners, it it does kind of make sense to not worry too much about what happens at Fontana and Michigan and the Brickyard. Of course, these guys want to win, of course, but you would rather focus on your one-mile package, your mile-and-a-half package, something that is going to benefit you more 
in your quest for the overall goal, which is to win the championship. And for someone like Denny, who, you know, let, let's be real. I think he definitely cares about his legacy within the sport. I think he takes pride that he's now a three-time Daytona 500 champion. Uh, yeah, of course. In his age 39 season, why wouldn't he want to wipe away all his blemishes? So uh, that would be fun uh, right. to take note. We'll have to see how it works out. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We're available no matter your device here on Positive Aggression. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. The help in spreading the word, it just helps us so much. We do notice it. It is so appreciated. As we said before, people are emailing us now. It's awesome. If you have any questions, we want to answer them on this podcast. So just reach out on Twitter. We love the discussion. At POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I've written about Joey Logano's restarts and Ryan Blaney's new team situation with Todd Gordon as crew chief. So be on the lookout for those. And on motorsportsanalytics.com, team-dependent statistics are now posted for Cup, Xfinity, and Trucks. Please go enjoy all the small sample size goodness, uh, knowing that February subscription proceeds are going to stomp out bullying. Um, we're, we're just hitting the, the point of the season where the numbers are going to matter soon. Go ahead and uh, get in on the ground floor of that. Uh, and thank you for checking all of that out. I've already been combing all through them. It's awesome. Uh, no trucks this weekend. The trucks are off for the next two weeks, which is sad because we've had two good races so far. But if you are listening on Thursday morning, that means you're a subscriber. So thank you for that. Make sure you watch Race Hub on Thursday. Bubba Wallace joins the latest edition of the A-List, and we have a pretty good discussion. He's A-List in his own right, David, but he also walks around with Richard Petty, which uh, renders him into the King's personal photographer. He'll tell that story on our race sub piece. But uh, a good conversation with Bubba, who had a great uh, finish in Las Vegas. And then after that, just make sure you watch uh, the Fox Family of Networks for all the action in Fontana this weekend. Off to a good start. Daytona, Las Vegas. Uh, good racing. I think Fontana should deliver again. So uh, yeah, just make sure you have a fun weekend of racing. Thank you so much. As we said before, this is episode 50. We've had 50 episodes of positive regression, and I think they only, they're only getting better, especially as we hear from more of you listeners uh, and knowing that you're watching racing differently and taking it in. So for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Stay positive, everybody. We'll see you next week. Partners. Losing weight is better together with Nutrisystem's Partner Plan. In fact, people who diet together lose 20% more weight than dieting on their own. Get new premium meals with up to 30 grams of protein. They're big and filling and taste delicious. Plus, try our new restaurant faves that taste like your favorite restaurant portioned with half the calories. Don't wait. You could win big cash during Nutrisystem's Better Together Partner Plan 100K giveaway. And maybe win the grand prize of $25,000. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash Finn right now. 
now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off your first month. You heard me right. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin right now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off. Don't wait. This partner plan offer will not last long. Just go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin right now and get 50% off plus an extra $50 off. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash thin. See website for details on our two-month subscription offer. No purchase necessary. Open only to U.S. residents over 21. Void where prohibited. Runs December 25 through April 4th, 2022. For official rules, visit Nutrisystem.com. Sponsored by Nutrisystem, Inc.